Hello, the internet, and welcome to the podcast Byzantium and Friends. I'm Anthony, your host. Today we're going to talk about the experience of being a monk or a nun in a Byzantine monastery. And now while not that many people, demographically speaking, lived in monasteries, nevertheless the institution and the distinctive type of culture to which it gave rise are often regarded as emblematic or very distinctive um, of Byzantine civilization as a whole. Now our focus is going to be on organized monastic life in what the Byzantines called kinovia, or groups of people living together under uh, a certain rule, as opposed to solitary ascetics, such as hermits and stylites, who uh, operate outside of such an institution. Now, organized monasteries are important not only for the social and religious spiritual um, role that they played in Byzantine life, but also because of the materials that they have left for us by which we study Byzantium as a whole. And I wanted to briefly itemize that the types of evidence that we have regarding monasteries to give you a sense of how wide their reach is in terms of impinging on our research. So first of all, if you think about it, these uh, monasteries are very interesting experiments in communal life. Um, that is a group of people who more or less voluntarily agree to live together under a particular regime. Uh, that regime is often codified in the monastery's rule, um, which in Greek is called a typikon. And we have quite a few of those, not st statistically not as many as we have monasteries, obviously, but um, there's a fairly large number that um, give very detailed insight into the rules that are supposed to govern uh, monastic life. The structure of the institution, the allocation of work and tasks and responsibilities, the punishments for violations and infractions, and so forth. So just that looking at how a little mini political community organized itself, these are some very fascinating documents. Monasteries are also central to a large part of the hagiographical corpus that was produced um, in the Byzantine millennium, that is saints' lives. So many saints were themselves founders of monasteries, or founders of monasteries were subsequently regarded as saints and their lives were written by their disciples or other members of the monastery, um, or they spent some time in monasteries during the course of a varied ascetic career. Um, and so a great deal of hagiographical writing, which in itself was probably the most voluminous part of Byzantine literature, relates in some way or another to monasteries. And this is a different view that we get of them uh, than we do from the rules. Um, so narratives and biographies, while also idealized, offer us a different perspective than do the rules. Third, many of the Byzantine churches that survive are the churches of monasteries. Now, the surrounding monastery has often disappeared, um, except in very few cases in Greece, um, Osis Lucas, so forth. But in most places, what survived of the monastic complex or campus, if you will, uh, is the church. Um, and so monasteries in that sense are very, very important for art historians and historians of Byzantine architecture. A fourth type of evidence that survives from the monasteries, um, and, and this starts increasingly in the later 10th century, and especially so after the 13th century, are there 
um, fiscal records, so their archives. Uh, many of these have to do with um, transactions uh, over land, uh, legal disputes, uh, adjudications of ownership uh, in which the court often got involved. These documents uh, which survive, uh, especially on Mount Athos uh, or Patmos and other important monastic centers, are some of our main and in some cases only evidence for uh, fiscal politics, uh, you know, economics, land, um, agricultural workforce, all of those kinds of things. And those documents are studied uh, often by economic historians who are not primarily interested in the more religious aspects of monastic life. And finally, of course, through all of those sources and others, um, including the art in the, in the monastic churches and the liturgy and so forth, we gain access to very important aspects of Byzantine religious life. So this is overall a very complex picture. Um, it requires facility with different kinds of evidence to put it all together and present a coherent picture. That is why my guest today um, is uh, Alice Mary Talbot, the former director of Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks, and someone who has done more than most, and possibly more than anyone, to bring to light um, all of these different aspects of monastic life, um, and has done certainly more than anyone to make those accessible to the wider public by making translations and sponsoring collective projects that have presented that uh, this evidence before us. Uh, she has organized and contributed to translations of the Tipica, the rules. Um, this is a very large collection, um, complete translation of the Byzantine Tipica um, that was produced by Dumbarton Oaks. You can find that online, along with many, many saints' lives, um, and um, also a great deal of original scholarship on aspects of monastic life, uh, ranging from uh, Byzantine monastic gardens to how um, monks changed their names from their secular name to a, a monastic name and, and so forth. And she has pulled her experience together into a book that was published last year. And this is called Varieties of Monastic Experience in Byzantium, 800 to 1453. And it's a wonderful introduction to uh, Byzantine monastic life. Uh, it, with, uh, it doesn't assume that you already know much about the topic. Uh, but also, if you do know a lot of the topic, uh, you will benefit from it, as, as I did. I should also add, it was a special pleasure and honor to have Alice Mary on the uh, podcast, um, as I collaborated her, with her for a, a few, few years on the Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library Project, uh, a series that publishes uh, translations of Byzantine texts. I've published a few in that series myself. Um, and I can attest to her formidable work ethic and, and intimidating philological skills. Um, when she sat down to correct one of my translations, I was sweating a bit under the collar, let me tell you. So Alice Mary has done a, a tremendous service uh, for the field of Byzantine studies in so many ways. Um, I also wanted to thank her for that opportunity and also for being a model uh, for uh, rigorous scholarship. Here then is my conversation with Alice Mary Talbot. Uh, thanks also to Medievalist.net for reposting these podcasts on their site. Alice Mary, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Anthony. It's good to chat with you. So we're talking today about, is it Byzantium and video games? 
oh, that that's a surprise. I, I'll have to do a little preparation for that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the most uh, asked for topic, and I'm actually working on it, but uh, <laughs> I'm not not with you. Um, so yeah, and I'm I don't know anything about that world, but I'm learning fast. No, we're talking about Byzantine monasticism, and you've just written a wonderful book about it, which I really enjoyed reading during the lockdown in is it June when, whenever that was um, and I recommend it to all of our listeners it's it's clear it's well written it's accessible it's got great stories and it lays out the the fundamentals uh, of Byzantine monasticism what it was about and how it was experienced by the men and women uh, who decided to live that uh, kind of life and so we're going to talk about that but why don't I ask you first so how did you come to be interested in Byzantine monasticism? Well, it's a bit of a long story, if you'll bear with me, but I, sure. I think it is interesting perhaps for other scholars because it shows perhaps the role of, in part of serendipity and how one discovers research topics that end up preoccupying much of your life. And uh, also the, what I think is the important relationship between teaching in the classroom and research. And so I would say it all began uh, at the beginning of my teaching career, which was in the beginning of the 1970s, when I first got a part-time adjunct position at Lake Erie College, which is a small women's college in Painesville, Ohio, very near Cleveland. And I was teaching uh, actually Byzantine history, one of the very few places I was able to teach Byzantine history. And uh, during, at, during my second year there, the dean of the college, who also was in the history department, called me into his office. And he says, Alice Mary, he says, I keep hearing about this new topic of women's studies. And he said, since we're a women's college, he says, I think we'd better introduce women's studies and I'd like you to help us. Could you teach a course on the history of women? And I sort of gulped and said, I'm not sure I could do one course on the history of women but if you'd like me to do a course on women in classical antiquity in the Middle Ages for one semester, I said I'd be happy to, to develop that course. So we agreed on that. And then I went to look for source materials. And of course, it was the very beginning of women's studies. So there was very, very little available. And I really had to scramble to, to put the course together. And, uh, but I managed. And I decided to do uh, only one week on Byzantine women because I could find almost nothing about them, but I did maybe three or, three or four weeks on medieval women. And in the course of my preparation, I discovered this book by a woman called Eileen Power who wrote in 1922, a book called Medieval English Nunneries. And I was absolutely fascinated by this book. 
it was a introductory account to English nunneries. And I just found the material very, very interesting because it went a lot into their lives. And I thought, oh, I wonder how this would compare with Byzantine convents. And when I went to do research on that, I found that absolutely nothing had been published on the subject. So I thought, well, I will try to find out about this. So I didn't have time to do it for the course, but I began doing research on it. And that's when I first discovered what are called tipika, which are these monastic foundation documents, the foundation documents for monasteries. And there are six of them for female convents. And so I started studying those documents. And I thought, no one has ever looked at these. Right. And so I began uh, studying them and did, I published, I gave an article at a Byzantine studies conference. I, I gave a paper at, on uh, nunneries. That was my first, first paper maybe in the late 70s, I don't remember now. And then in the early 80s, very beginning of the 1980s, John Thomas and Giles Constable started this project, uh, which is was published as Byzantine Monastic Foundation Documents by mm -hmm. Dumbarton Oaks. It took 20 years, but it, it was, a very worthwhile publication, I Absolutely. think, one of the most important that Dumbarton Oaks has done. Absolutely. And uh, I was very involved in that project. I volunteered to do the, uh, I did five out of six of the Tipica for female monasteries, and I ended up doing um, five for, for male monasteries too. So that really got me intrigued uh, about uh, monasteries and I just kept on going and I will say that the wonderful thing is the way that in the course of my career how many uh, important publications have come out which have been essential for the study of monasticism and I think that's one reason to my mind is still a relatively neglected field and I think it's because some of the basic materials have only become available in the past half century or so. Right. So it was out of that one request by a dean, which it, it sounds a little bit like, oh, Alice Mary, you're a woman. You you can teach about women, right? <laughs> exactly. It's one of those. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. one of those, that logic. But long-term out of that came some fundamental work for the field, like the Certainly the translations of the Tipica that you mentioned, I think those are online, uh, uh, anyone yeah, can access yes, them. They, are de uh, they were put online uh, at the same time as the publication in the year uh, 2000. Uh, the mm. only uh, problem with them is that they are available as individual files, not as the total volume. So you can't do uh, global searches for- Oh, I have a comprehensive, file. Oh, you I wrote, do? I, yeah, I don't know where I got it, but someone, oh, put, um, all right, someone put it together. Someone I guess. put it I, together. And, okay. Uh, yeah, we can do that now. 
I, and uh, yeah. so yeah, I can do searches. Uh, and I was just doing a few a uh, couple weeks ago, actually. But also, you put together a bibliography at some point on uh, for uh, women in Byzantium that was circulating online. I printed it out something like 20 some years ago. Oh, well, it's available uh, through the Dumbarton Oaks yeah. website. It's a, a much later uh, iteration of it. It's now turned into a gender bibliography. I, uh, Margaret Mullet took it over after I retired as director of Byzantine studies and made it a, a broader bibliography. And it's still continuing. It, uh, right. You can find it uh, under Dumbarton Oaks. Yes. So was its genesis also goes back to that course? I think you'd have to, well, the bibliography, yes, I guess you'd have to say so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I thank you to that Dean, I guess, when, you know, whatever, <laughs> clumsy, clumsily he, he put that together. But anyway, it's a good, yeah. So, and thank you to you. I mean, these are, these are fundamental resources. Um, and uh, so now that we've mentioned them, why don't we, why don't you tell us a little bit about more uh, overall, the sources for Byzantine monasticism. So you've mentioned the Tipica. From what other sources do we know about the lives of Byzantine monks and nuns? First, maybe I should say an, another few words about the about the Tipica, yeah. uh, which which I do view as as really the most important source. Uh, and but I should ex emphasize that they are normative documents. We, yeah, these are rules made to be followed at the monastery. And whenever you write rules, it's normally because uh, the uh, residents of an institution or inhabitants of an institution are not following the rules. So you can't uh, believe that everything worked as perfectly as these normative documents uh, right. lead, might lead you to believe. And uh, they also, uh, well, there are only uh, six of them for women, and there are 61 altogether out of who knows how many were originally written. Mm -hmm. And this small number does you know, give me cause for concern because you wonder how many more have been lost. And uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, and then I'll go on to the other other types of, of documents. Uh, for me, the, the second most useful type of material has been hagiography, the lives of saints. And this is because almost all holy men and women were monastics at, uh, during their careers. And so they provide a somewhat different perspective, I think, on monastic life, because they take an individual and you see them entering a monastery and their uh, travails as a novice and then their life in a monastery. And you hear much more about all the things that went wrong in monasteries, for example, uh, difficult abbots uh, and uh, just the problems of, of no, young novices, for example, that they had adapting to this life. And at the, on the other hand, they are saints' lives. They certainly exaggerate the 
asceticism of the monks, I think, with especially these extreme exercises some of mm -hmm. them were performing. And you have to be quite skeptical of, of some of the stories that you read. But I do think that you can learn a great deal from these saints' lives. So I use those extensively in my book, definitely. Yeah. And uh, then a, a third uh, source of information uh, is the, uh, which was not as useful to me, uh, is the monastic archives, especially the ones surviving from Mount Athos, which have been just brilliantly published over the yes. past decades. And they are extremely useful for learning about all of the real estate holdings of monasteries and all of the disputes over property Exactly. And that sort of thing. But they tell you very little about life inside the monastery. And so I didn't find them that that helpful, although I, I did use them. They're certainly enormously helpful for the economic history. Absolutely. And yeah. 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 Economic historians. Essential yeah, yeah. for that. So then um, I should mention the. Um, synodal acts from the patriarchal court in Constantinople, which um, still have not been properly published. Uh, they're working on it in Vienna, but it's a very, very slow yeah. process. But they are very useful at um, sort of providing vignettes of the um, problems that various um, monks and nuns had uh, with uh, the courts when they had to seek uh, recourse to the courts when they had been either uh, wronged in some way or when then they themselves were accused of, of offenses and had to defend themselves uh, in court. And so uh, I really enjoyed getting to know that, that body of material and uh, being introduced to individual monks and nuns who uh, either got into trouble or described the problems that their monasteries uh, faced uh, from outsiders, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then we have some writings by uh, monks, uh, especially those that are trying to articulate the principles of the monastic life and the goals of it. So like the yeah. works of Theodore the Studite. Um, that, oh, uh Yes. Yeah. They're, so they're, let's talk about him a little bit because okay. he's kind of important in your book. And so how how important is he? He's referred to often as a monastic reformer. Um, so can you say a little bit about what he did and why he's so important? Yes, I'd be happy to. Theodore, I do believe, was an absolutely essential figure in the history of Byzantine monasticism. And it's the re main reason I began. Well, there are two reasons I began my book with the year 800. One is that most of the tipika begin with the ninth century and go to the 15th century. And so that's when you have this wonderful um, mm -hmm. resource. And then because of Theodore himself, who comes to Constantinople in 799 uh, from the provinces, having been invited by the Empress Irene to reform and revive the Studios Monastery, which was a very ancient institution. It's one of the earliest foundations uh, in Constantinople, but it had fallen on uh, 
bad times by the uh, late uh, 8th century. And Irene thought that Theodore was the man to help to uh, revive it and renovate it, you might, you might say. So he came to Constantinople and he actually spent uh, not that long at the, the monastery, um, but uh, he died in 826 and he was sent into exile before then. So he was actually at the monastery only about 10, 15 years, I think, but he mm -hmm. did an amazing amount in that short period of time. And uh, his main goals were first of all to re-emphasize the principle of cenobitism, the idea that a monastery should be a communal institution with egalitarian principles. And so he placed great emphasis on this. And he felt very strongly that monks should, all the monks should perform manual labor or have some sort of a duty. So it didn't have to be manual, but uh, he certainly yeah. emphasized manual labor. And one thing he did, for example, was to forbid the use of slaves because he thought the monks should be doing the work. And uh, he also uh, instituted a new liturgical practice at the monastery. Uh, before Theodore, the monastery had followed what's called the uh, practice of the sleepless monks, which was a perpetual 24-hour prayer service in which some monks were always doing some sort of service or prayer in the chapel. Like a relay. Yeah, exactly. And he felt that that was taking up too much of the monk's time. So he instituted at the studios the what's called the liturgical uh, Tipicon of St. Sabas of Jerusalem, which has the seven canonical offices that I think we are mostly you know, familiar with now which includes the um, matins or orthros and the vespers and the different hours, the third hour, the um, sixth hour, the ninth hour, Compline, the ones we're, we're, we're familiar with. So we instituted those so that the monks could have more time to uh, do their work. And so that was a major, major reform. So when you say egalitarianism, so what alternative might one imagine? I mean, are like, and you mentioned slaves. So you've got like a, it's a aristocratic hierarchies with people and slaves in monasteries. I mean, what was he trying to abolish exactly? Uh, what he was trying to, to do was to emphasize that everyone in the monastery should essentially be treated in the same way in terms of food and clothing and uh, sleeping arrangements. And so everyone had the same, same uh, monastic garb. Uh, one of the most extraordinary aspects of Theodore's uh, rules for me is his rule about underwear, which you may not be familiar with, that he, uh, insisted that the monks exchange underwear every Saturday. 
And that made a big impression on me. I didn't know this before reading your book, honestly. And especially when you think that the monks came in all different sizes. Yes. I'm not also, I must say, I'm not quite sure what monastic underwear looked like, but, mm-hmm. but anyway, so he did that. And then he made great emphasis that in the refectory, that everyone should eat the same food. And uh, this was the, the principles which really continued, I mean, for the rest of, of the Byzantine uh, centuries. Uh, he also was a great believer in economic self-sufficiency. And so one thing he did at the studios was to introduce all kinds of artisans. First of all, it was a very, he increased the size of the monastery. So it got up to several hundred monks. And because it was so big, he could have all kinds of specialist artisans who would craft uh, all of the types of objects that you need to run a major institution like that. And so there were you know, blacksmiths and tailors and stonemasons, uh, as well as the usual, which you might expect of scribes and cooks and bakers and gardeners and you know, that yeah. kind of, of yeah. workers. And former soldiers and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> what do they? What, okay, so yeah, what kind of uh, specialized tasks did they perform? I mean, what? Not uh, not in the sense of the skills that the people brought to the monastery who joined it, but the activities that Theodore himself thought were most valuable for a monastery to perform. Well, uh, first of all, you have to run an institution. So you need uh, officials who have the various tasks of Mm. running the monastery itself. And this means you need people who are gonna supervise the refectory, you make sure there's enough food. Uh, You need people who make sure that there's the right clothing available, that the underwear is available for for the monks. And especially if you're getting all these new monks as the monastery is increasing in size, they had to make provision to get all these materials available. Uh, there was a man called the steward or economos who was extremely important. He was really number two to the abbot. And he was responsible for what we might call the, um, the superintendent of buildings. He was responsible for the maintenance of the monastery mm-hmm. and any new construction that had to be done, he would supervise that. And he was also responsible for managing all of the properties that the monastery owned and the uh, tenant farmers who worked on those properties. This so, is sounding like a college or university. Yeah. <laughs> Did they have a marketing department? <laughs> <laughs> not, that, not that I know of, but there are very interesting comparisons, yes. Yeah. So did they engage in agricultural work? Absolutely. Yes. Right. Not so much in in uh, Constantinople itself. Sure. Uh, although in later years, uh, when the city was de- in severe decline during the Paleologan period, there were actually a lot of empty, right. uh, empty Plots, areas yeah. in the city. And you could have 
all kinds of fields and vineyards and orchards and all. But at the time of uh, the studios, when Constantinople was thriving, uh, they didn't have wheat fields in the middle of Constantinople. So they would have, those fields would be in the, in the countryside. Yeah, what, what about but, Scriptoria? Oh, well, yes. Uh, uh, Theodore as a great scholar himself, he was a, a, a prolific author and uh, he greatly emphasized the intellectual life and the Studite Scriptorium was one of the most famous. And we know more about it than any other Scriptorium, both from the manuscripts that have survived that were written there, of which there are hundreds. And it's also the place where the minuscule script was developed in the ninth century. But we also know about it because of a, a book that uh, Theodore drafted, which was penalties, punishments for anything that monks did wrong in the monastery. And so for every job in the monastery, there were punishments. Oh. For example, if you were a cook and you let the stew boil over or you dropped a pot and it broke, that you have to do uh, 50 prostrations or something like that. And there's a whole section on the scriptorium, which tells us the uh, penalties for scribes who don't pay attention or uh, make ink blots or <laughs> make mistakes. And, and so the manuscripts that they produced, do we know whether those were for the monastery's own library or were these external commissions or what did they do? Did they sell these it, books or what? Yeah, you know, um, most of these monastic scriptoria were both for internal consumption to, for their own library and for the, uh, the books they needed for the church services. And also they would um, take orders from outside. And so private patrons could come to the scriptorium and, and request, make requests for, for books. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a great emphasis placed on obedience. You talk about this a, a lot. It, it is a hierarchical structure, but I think it was also part of the, not just the workings of the institution, but also the spiritual goals of the vocation, right? What obedience was sort of built into the understanding of what monks are supposed to be doing there, which is... Um, well, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, what are the the spiritual or, or ethical goals of the monastic life in terms of obedience and kind of effacing one's own individuality? Yes, I mean, obedience was was definitely uh, emphasized. This was obedience to the abbot and probably to the uh, the senior officials too. I would I would guess, but it's obedience to the abbot is what we hear the most about. And uh, this was stressed for the moment a young novice uh, arrived. And first of all, I mean, you were inculcated with these goals of, uh, of egalitarian um, ideals. And because of this idea that the monks should be equal to each other and not try to outdo each other in any way. There was a uh, insistence that you not try to engage in excessive asceticism. 
as that was judged more appropriate for individual solitary uh, monks, for example, but not for members of a monastic community. And so we hear, we read lots of stories about young zealous monks who want to prove themselves, you know, I'm going to be the yeah, best yeah. recruit that this monastery is, has made, and I'm going to eat less than, than the guy who came uh, two weeks ago. And they are constantly being uh, put down by the abbots and saying, no, you mustn't Eat. do you mustn't do that. Uh, there's a famous story about uh, Athanasius, the future uh, founder of the great Lavra on Mount Athos, who uh, started his monastic career in Bithynia at a holy mountain called Kiminas. And when he got there, he was full of zeal. And he immediately told the abbot that he was going to only eat um, every, I think every three days or something like that. And the abbot says, no, he says, you know, you are going to go to the refectory and eat with the other, other monks. Because he says, if you try to engage in these ascetic, this ascetic fasting, you, you're essentially engaging in acts of hubris and trying to elevate yourself mm -hmm. above the other monks. And mm -hmm. he says, you do what you are told and you go to the refectory and you eat what's put in front of you. So, you know, that's one, the other thing is he said that he uh, wouldn't sleep uh, on the on a, a mattress, but he insisted on sleeping in a chair. And he says, no, he says, you put a mat on the ground and you lie on that mat and sleep on it. So. Right, right. Because the overachieving, right? It's pride. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very struck by those stories because they're, they're almost like paradoxical because the text wants to praise the monk or saint for asceticism but there's also this dimension of well you can take it so far that you're verging on being prideful and mm -hmm. and and there's this very fine line between being a show-off and being uh, genuinely uninterested in material pleasures and such i remember a story this is uh, maybe from it's it's early maybe the sayings of the desert fathers or something like that i, I don't recall and it's like advice to a, either an abbot or just a supervisor of a small group. And it says some, some of these zealot, zealous young monks, they're going to come and they want to like climb the ladder super fast and you're going to have to grab him by the foot and pull him back down. <laughs> mm -hmm. I remember that. That's yeah. Yeah. It, these are the fascinating uh, uh, sort of paradoxes of, 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 of um, these or, instit, or, instit, organized institutions that premised on asceticism that still have to maintain an egalitarian. Yeah, you, you also see this in in um, young monks who wanted to go off and become a a, a solitary, mm. and that they would be told, "No, uh, you have to uh, wait, and you can't just run off right now and and do it." Yeah, uh, yeah. There's a a story of. Um, in the life of uh, Lazarus of Galician about a, a 17 year old uh, who had just arrived uh, at his monastery, who wanted to become not just a, a hermit, he wanted to become a stylite to live on top of a pillar. And um, 
the uh, Lazarus told him, you're too, sorry, you're too young to do this. You have to go through a trial period first and, and prove yourself that you can live in a communal monastery and, and obey orders. And he was told that for, I think for, I can't remember, three, three years, two years, um, he wasn't allowed to speak. And every day he had to walk down the mountain and carry two heavy pails of water back up the mountain. There wasn't any water on this mountain. <laughs> so, and um, so he did it. And finally he was allowed to go off and become a uh, stylite, but uh, not right away, not when he was 17, so. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the army too, at the same time, they, what they keep saying over and over again is no individual heroics. Mm -hmm. You all stay in line and you follow orders and you don't don't deviate from the plan because it's yeah yeah it's interesting. Um, so since these are little uh, political communities in a way, how did monks or monasteries choose their leaders? In many different ways, and this is one thing that the Tipika uh, do prescribe uh, in every case is how how the abbot. Uh, is to be chosen. And I would say most often there seemed to be a preference that it be by the consensus or general vote of the of the community that uh, it was it was a po a popular choice, shall shall we say. Mm -hmm. But uh, this didn't um, always happen. Uh, there are many variations on a theme, you might say. Uh, if the uh, present abbot, uh, let's say, you know, knew he was sick or he was on his deathbed and that his days were limited, the uh, current abbot might designate his preference for a successor. And often his wishes would be, would be um, followed. Um, sometimes uh, the abbot might designate three possibilities, three choices, and they would vote on the, the community would then vote on those right. three. But sometimes they had it chosen by lot and they would write the names of the three individuals on slips of paper and put them on the altar, and the priest would, would select one. And then there could be outside influence. For example, if a monastery was an imperial foundation, the emperor might have a say. If mm -hmm. it was a patriarchal foundation, the patriarch might have a say. Mm -hmm. um, many monasteries had these sort of external lay uh, supervisors who are called karistikari or ephori and they might also have a say in who the abbot was to be right. so it wasn't always the choice of the monks within the monastery yeah yeah and so some of these monasteries especially those in constantinople some of the larger ones they had members of the community were not monks they were just people like living there um i even i've heard 
I've seen references to people like renting rooms in some of these monasteries, just secular people just, just living in the monastery. So some of these communities had members of you know the outside world living in there. Like how, how do those arrangements work and why did people who are not monks choose to live in or near monasteries? Yeah, um, for, very, for their various reasons. Uh, one thing, there is this institution called uh, the Adolfaton, which was a, um, an, an allotment of, of food and money. And this was uh, a way that someone could, uh, in a sense, be assured of maintenance in one's old age, for example. And so that was that there do seem to have been people who had held these adolfata and could could live in a, in a monastery. Yeah. It's kind of like a retirement plan. Yeah. And I mean, some people did that and actually became took took vows. Right. But there seemed to be people who uh, remain retained their lay, lay status. Yeah. And some institutions, I'm thinking, for example, of uh, Alexios Komnenos' The Orphanage. And that was like, I've seen it described as a campus. It has a hospital and an an orphanage and a home for the disabled. And and there are monks there, and presumably they're doing service chores for all of those other institutions. Yeah, this, uh, I think the, the creation of Alexius Kaminas is, is unique. I mean, it, okay. it sounds just extraordinary if it's really as big as, it's, as his daughter makes it okay. out yeah. to be. I mean, that it had poor houses and, and orphanages and hospitals and... A choir I mean, school. Yeah, it, you know, any sort of need you had could be met in this, what he calls a city, I think. It's called mm. a city. Yeah. And... Um, it is true that you know there are. It is mentioned that there are monasteries there, but um, as you know, I've, as I've looked at these institutions of this sort, um, it's my impression that. Well, let, let me back up first. Uh, certain monasteries definitely had these charitable institutions on their grounds. They had um, hospitals or they had old age homes, uh, just as an example, the Pantocrator uh, Monastery founded by John II uh, Kamninos uh, had this famous 50 bed hospital, mm-hmm. yeah. which had five different wards and it had a large staff. And it seemed to have been actually a combination of what we would call a hospital, a short term care facility and a long-term care facility, because there's mention of people be getting, being given annual allowances of food, enough food to last them for a year. So clearly sure. people were staying there for long periods of time. And there was also an old age home, which John II founded in connection with the Pantocrator Monastery. Uh, but this, uh, a lot of the institutions like the orphanages and the poor houses and all, um, I think were either imperial foundations or were founded by um, wealthy aristocrats. And 
were not actually run by monasteries. They were separate from, from uh, monasteries. I see. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So how was the experience, the monastic experience for women different uh, from that uh, of men? Um, I'm obviously talking the book about, you know, women don't appear very much as sort of solitary ascetics or, or hermits, mm -hmm. that their yeah. experience is more on the uh, communal side and nunneries. But how is it different within that? Because right. I think the general organization was similar. Yes. I mean, certainly... Uh... The, the basic monastic rule and what was the same and you had the same monastic officials and organization, but there were um, a lot of differences between a, a female convent and a, and a, a male monastery. Uh, let's see, the, uh, first of all, the rule of enclosure was much stricter for women right. that they were, they kept a very close eye on them and they couldn't go out without uh, supervision, shall we say, uh, whereas the male monks were much freer, I think, to, to go out. Uh, the uh, convents tended to be, uh, certainly there are many fewer of them than male monasteries, uh, and they tended to be smaller in size. Uh, and a major difference is they, were mostly urban. And one reason for mm. this seems to have been uh, that the, so many of them, I think, were uh, the homes for aristocratic women who were used to being in cities and wanted to stay in cities. Uh, but um, there also was the fear that Rural monastery, rural convents. Uh, it was more dangerous for nuns to be isolated in the countryside; that they might be more vulnerable to, I mean, attacks by pirates, for example, or bandits, or things like that. Has happened. Yeah. Um, but let's see. There's a, really quite a few differences uh, between the male and female institutions. Um, one of the big ones I would say is that the women did much less manual labor and didn't have the variety of uh, trades that you would find in, for example, the studios. The main uh, work that women did in a convent was um, various kinds of textile manufacture. I mean, everything from spinning the, the, the wool to make the yarn to weaving it and to actually making clothes. And this seems to be, have been a, a major uh, function uh, at convents. I found one reference to candle making, but other hmm. than that, I, have, I haven't found you know, references to uh, the trades. There also was much less intellectual life. There we have you know, just, uh, handful of female scribes, for example. We know almost nothing about female um, uh, miniature uh, artists uh, or icon painters, or um, even as authors, they are very poorly represented. Just a handful of, of authors of saints' lives. Uh, 
so it's very different from the male monasteries where you had uh, many, many um, famous monastic authors writing uh, yeah, theological yeah. treatises, writing saints' lives, writing chronicles. Uh, you just don't don't have that in the convents. How young could uh, women or girls be when they joined a nunnery? Uh, again, the, there is uh, some variation between the tipika. This is it's always specified, and it usually uh, would be a, a teenager would be the the normal age to to enter. Right. Yeah. So, how large could, or how large or how small could Byzantine convents or monasteries be? Uh, I think the largest convent I've run across was a hundred, but they were mostly much smaller. They were around, um, let's say, a twelve or twenty-four or thirty, maybe fifty, but nothing bigger than that. Whereas some of the male monasteries were much bigger. I mean, the Studios, uh, for example, had several hundred. Uh, on Athos, the, the Lavra had, I think, 700 at one point. So they are much, much larger. Yeah. There was a, um, a minimum size of three. In order to be called a monastery, you had to have, have three monks or nuns yeah i i remember uh this is in the law of basil ii the emperor where he says like there's in a village and these three guys decide okay we're going to be a monastery from now on and they incorporate and carry on as a monastery and what was he doing i think he was trying to protect them from takeovers from the bishops or something like that yeah yeah those are pretty small groups so in a sense we can't actually count up we can't have a total a figure of the total number of uh, of monks at any time in in Byzantium as a whole, right? Like, no, I mean that's there, beyond us. No, there there have been efforts to tabulate the number of of monasteries all over, but um, we we just don't know. I mean, there are so many unknowns, and and for example, the whole issue of of Cappadocia, for example, where there are just no documents right. at all. We have these buildings which have been identified as monasteries, but we have no names attached to them. Some people aren't even positive they're monasteries. Uh, it's really hard, hard to know. The uh, Assumptionist Fathers have done a wonderful job at, at tabulating the ones in, in Constantinople and some of the ones in the provinces, but their works, they never finish this work. So it's, it is an unfinished project. Yeah, yeah. So my understanding is that Byzantine monks in contrast to the medieval West were generally not ordained. Uh, whereas in the West over time, increasingly the monastic location was coupled with ordination as, as clergy. Yeah. Um, and, and I often find the medievalist colleagues aren't aware of this. Um, so you're, you're talking with them on the Western medieval side and they say, oh, I didn't know that. So, so what's at stake in that? What's the difference between a monk being ordained or not in the Byzantine context? Uh, well, uh, first of all, it, it's not quite clear what proportion were ordained. If you look at the 
the uh, tipica and the figures that are given there, it seems to range between 10 and 20% of the monks were ordained. And uh, I, on the other hand, I did a calculation based on the prosopographical uh, dictionary for the uh, Paleologan period. And uh, I came up with a, a higher percentage of, of maybe you know, 50% uh, were um, um, ordained, but I'm not sure if that's just uh, the sources, the available sources, and maybe ordained monks. Some of them were more famous and were more likely get to mentioned, and therefore to get into right. the prosopographical dictionary. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, but we do know that certainly there was absolutely no requirement that a monk be ordained, and that many of them never, never were ordained. Uh, they were called um, a hero, hero monachost, yeah. which could be either, uh, refer either to a deacon or a priest. And uh, you certainly had to have a certain number in the monastery, uh, especially to uh, perform all these, you know, seven yep. canonical offices yeah, yeah, yeah. that that you had and uh so that was one of their you know their main uh functions uh but i've been you know sort of wondering about this it's an interest i'm not sure anyone has really looked in in detail at this question and yeah i have a couple of ideas but i've never studied it myself um one one thought was that um you had i think that there was a definite preference that confession be held by the ordained ordained monks uh confession i mean monks confession yeah uh, and rather than confessing to another monk that you would confess to a, a priest or right. maybe a deacon and uh so this was one another reason why you had to have a certain number of ordained monks within your monastery. But I also have had the idea um, that if you were, had ambitions that you might seek to be ordained, if you wanted to go on later to become a bishop or maybe even a patriarch. Right. Right. And this would explain, you know, why some some monks would definitely seek out ordination and want to do that rather than just remaining an ordinary monk. Yes, I remember John Fine. Um, he taught me at Michigan. It's in the nineties. He would he would refer to the Ivy League monasteries in Constantinople, <laughs> where you choose all the patriarchs and the bishops from. Yeah, which Studios was definitely an Ivy, an Ivy League. Yes, monastery. yes. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's funny the way he put it. I remember now a story from one of the uh, ecumenical councils. I don't remember which one, oh, but, it's, but I've read it in the past year. And it's a story, um, and I bring this story up because in the in Byzantine hagiography, especially about monks, they don't highlight this aspect of whether they're ordained or not. It, it, it doesn't play that much of a role. It's, it's all about the things that they do as monks or as ascetics, regardless of, of whether they're ordained. 
Um, in other words, that the holiness isn't linked to that, certainly. And I remember this story where there's a there's a West an Easterner and a Westerner. There's some someone from Italy at the conference. I think it's in Constantinople. And and the guy at some point that the Byzantine is saying that he he gave confession to someone. And the, there's a question as was he ordained or what church was that? And it's oh no no he he wasn't he he did he was just old and looked holy enough. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that, that about sums it up. Yeah. Anthony, if I could say one other thing in that that regard, um, it's interesting, in, you know, in the Tipica again that they uh, that there seems sometimes to be a preference that these ordained monks be the ones who are made the high officials in a monastery or the mm. abbot, but it's by no means mandatory, mm. and there is surprising little. Privilege, which I say, privilege yeah. assigned to them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's why I asked because it's not highlighted in in special ways. And anyway, uh, so Alice, maybe we're almost out of time, but I wanted to give you the chance to say something about the the more sort of hermit side of things, um, especially stylites, because you talk about those in the book too. The the book covers all the varieties. In fact, it's called Varieties of Monastic Experience. <laughs> um, I just wanted to because we couldn't do everything, I decided to focus more on the sort of communal cenobitic monasticism. Mm -hmm. um, any any good stories about stylites uh, in this period? Well, uh, I've always been fascinated by, by stylites. Uh, and they definitely were deemed the elite. If you have a hierarchy of, of saints, Right. The, the stylites are at the top. In fact, at the beginning of the uh, life of, of St. Luke, the stylite, he spells this out and says there is a hierarchy and, and stylites are at the, at, at the oh. top of that. And of course, when you think about them, that they were climbing up on top of this pillar or column and getting closer to heaven than the ordinary uh, human beings, that their feet did not tread the ground uh, they were very special type of ascetic uh, monk. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's they don't exist in the West. There's only one attested in, right. in the entire mm -hmm. Western medieval Europe. So they are a, a unique Byzantine phenomenon, I would say. Um, yeah. Well, certainly the climate in the West doesn't doesn't help. Well, it actually could be pretty nasty in parts of the Byzantine Empire too, yeah, especially yeah. if like Lazarus, you lived in a, in a, they had little huts on top yeah. or enclosures on top of these uh, columns, but his hut was unroofed. So he was exposed to all the elements yeah. and he was on a mountain in Anatolia. Right. So certainly, you know, in the winter time, it must have been pretty, pretty miserable. brutal. Yeah, no. and uh, Daniel in the fifth century, he froze a couple times, right? They had to thaw him out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> his beard had frozen to his chest. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, Alice, Mary, this but, but yes. No, I just yeah. have one story, one story, if you. Sure, sure. Okay, just about about St. Luke, the, the stylite, who lived uh, right across from Constantinople on the seashore, just south of Chalcedon. Mm-hmm. And uh, although he was up on this column, he was very popular with the local community and they always came to 
the bottom of his column to chat with him and to seek advice and to get his blessing and to to seek healing from him and all. And uh, there was a group of fishermen who fished, who went out in their boats, I guess, very close to his column. And he used to chat with them and they were complaining that the fishing had been just terrible and they just weren't catching anything. So he uh, said, well, I'll see what I can do to help you. And he, first of all, he, he blessed their fishing nets and poles or whatever they were using. And he gave them little pieces of cloth, which he tore off a, a holy towel that he had. And he told them to tie that to their nets. And then he blessed pieces of bread and gave them the bread to throw in the water as, as bait. And they made a tremendous catch of fish and they brought it back. And of course they sold a lot of it, but they had a great feast at the base of the column. And the saint joined in their feast of freshly caught fish. Oh, nice. And I thought that was a nice example of his engagement with the local community. So they weren't as isolated as you might uh, view them. No, no. It, you know, especially if he set his column up there, it, it just struck me the just the visuals of it, because they could probably see from there the imperial columns in Constantinople itself, especially Justinian right next to mm -hmm. Hagia Sophia, this very tall column with a huge equestrian statue on top and a row of columns, you know, you. You're right. I, that, I hadn't thought about that. Yes. Right. Yeah. The Con Constantine's column with this colossal bronze statue on top, probably gleaming in the sun. And then later on, you got Theodosius and down the street, you've got Arcadius. I don't know if Arcadius's column would have been vis visible from that point. So as you're going into the Bosphorus, so you've got on the right, you've got Luke up on his column. And then you look up the, across at the city and uh, you've got a Yisophia and you've got this row of imperial columns and yeah, no, I, I, I don't know. I, so you I can think, think of just you can think of Justinian as a stylite. <laughs> no, no, it's almost it's almost like a like a saintly alternative to the imperial columns. Like, yeah. 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 no, no, I wouldn't I wouldn't get my fish from Justinian. <laughs> anyway, all right, Alice Mary, this has been wonderful. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. Thank and you. I recommend your book also to anybody who wants to read more about this. Uh, just it, you, you tell it beautifully and it's, it's a great place for, it's an introduction, but also, also I think scholars, I learned a lot from it. There's so much, the underwear just being a small case in point. <laughs> All right. So okay. thank you again and take care. Thank you, Anthony. Bye-bye.